Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OrthoBullets podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of lumbar spine anatomy found under the spine section at orthobullets.com. Let's begin by discussing alignment. In the sagittal plane, the lumbar spine will demonstrate lumbar lordosis with an average of 60 degrees. However, the normal range is between 20 to 80 degrees. The apex of the lordosis is typically at L3, and the disc spaces are responsible for most of the lordosis. Now let's discuss lumbar osteology. Remember that the lumbar spine has the largest vertebral bodies in the axial spine. Components of the vertebral bodies include the anterior vertebral body, the posterior arch, which is formed by the pedicles. Remember that the pedicles project posteriorly from the posterior lateral corners of the vertebral bodies. There's also the lamina, which project posterior medially from the pedicles and join in the midline. There are also spinous processes, transverse processes, mammillary processes, which are separate ossification centers, and they project posteriorly from the superior articular facet. And there's also the pars interarticularis. This is a massive bone between the superior and inferior articular facets, and it is the site of spondylolysis. The articulations include the intervertebral discs, which act as an articulation above and below the vertebral body. There are facet joints, also referred to as zygopophyseal joints. These are formed by the superior and inferior articular processes that project from the junction of the pedicle and lamina. And remember that the facet orientation becomes more coronal as you move inferiorly. In terms of lumbar pedicle anatomy, the midpoint of the transverse process is used to identify the midpoint of the pedicle in the superior inferior dimension. The lateral border of the pars is used to identify the midpoint in the medial lateral dimension. With regards to pedicle angulation, Remember that the pedicles angulate more medially as you move distally. At L1, it angulates at roughly 12 degrees. At L5, roughly 30 degrees, whereas at S1, it angulates at roughly 39 degrees. And in terms of the pedicle diameter, L1 has the smallest diameter in the lumbar spine, whereas T4 has the smallest diameter overall. Remember also that S1 has an average diameter of about 19 millimeters. In terms of the lumbar blood supply, Lumbar vertebral bodies are supplied by segmental arteries, and their dorsal branches supply blood to the dura and posterior elements. Now let's discuss the neurologic structures. The nerve roots exit the foramen under the same numbered pedicle, and a central herniation affects the traversing nerve root, whereas a far lateral herniation affects the exiting nerve root. The dorsal rami supply the muscles and skin, whereas the ventral rami supply the anteromedial trunk. Key differences between the cervical and lumbar spine include the pedicle nerve root mismatch. In the cervical spine, the C6 nerve root travels under the C5 pedicle, so there's a mismatch, whereas in the lumbar spine, the L5 nerve root travels under the L5 pedicle, so there's a match. The extra C8 nerve root without a C8 pedicle allows for the transition. The other key difference is the horizontal versus vertical anatomy of the nerve root. Because of the vertical anatomy of the lumbar nerve root, a paracentral and foraminal disc will affect different nerve roots. But because of the horizontal anatomy of the cervical nerve root, a central and foraminal disc will affect the same nerve root. In terms of the intervertebral disc, the sinuvertebral nerve is responsible for nociception and proprioception of the disc. However, nerve fibers are present along the periphery of the annulus fibrosis only. And in terms of the cauda equina, Remember that this typically begins at around L1 in adults. Let's now discuss lumbar and pelvic sagittal alignment. Pelvic incidence is defined as pelvic tilt and sacral slope. To find the pelvic incidence, a line is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head. 
a second line is drawn perpendicular to a line drawn along the S1 end plate intersecting the point in the center of the S1 end plate. The angle between these two lines is the pelvic incidence, and the pelvic incidence correlates with the severity of disease, and pelvic incidence also has direct correlation with the Meyerding-Newman grade. Pelvic tilt is equal to pelvic incidence minus sacral slope. In order to find the pelvic tilt, a line is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head. A second vertical line, which is parallel with the side margin of the radiograph, is drawn intersecting the center of the femoral head. The angle between these two lines is the pelvic tilt. Sacral slope is equal to the pelvic incidence minus pelvic tilt. In order to find the sacral slope, a line is drawn parallel to the S1 end plate. A second horizontal line, which is parallel to the inferior margin of the radiograph, is drawn. The angle between these two lines is the sacral slope. Now let's discuss image-guided interventions. As a general overview, these may be performed using CT or fluoroscopic guidance. A 22 to 25 gauge needle is usually used for injections of local anesthetic and corticosteroid. A selective nerve root injection is indicated for unilateral radicular symptoms, and it is used for therapeutic and diagnostic purposes. The technique involves a transforaminal outside-in technique. A facet joint injection is indicated to confirm the facet joint as a pain generator, so it is a diagnostic procedure. It may also be used as a therapeutic procedure. Epidural injections are indicated for lumbar spinal stenosis. Discography is very controversial, but it may be used to prove that pain arises from the intervertebral disc, referred to as concordant pain, rather than other sources, which is referred to as discordant pain. The technique involves a small amount of dilute contrast being injected into the disc and the pain response is then recorded. Contrast also helps to assess disc morphology and diagnose annular tears. Now let's discuss surgical approaches. Posteriorly, one may use a posterior midline approach, which can be used for a PLIF or a TLIF, and a Wilts paraspinal approach may also be used. For anterior lateral, one may use a retroperitoneal approach. Remember that the aorta bifurcates at L4, L5, and the superior hypogastric plexus is on the L5 body so damage to this can cause retrograde ejaculation. This is also referred to as a trans-soas approach or a direct lateral approach. The patient positioning involves a lateral position and is usually performed on the left side due to an increased strength of aorta to injury. The target levels are ideal for access to L1, L2, L2, L3, and L3, L4. It is less ideal for access to L4, L5 as this has the highest risk of iatrogenic nerve injury to the lumbar plexus and resulting hip flexion and knee extension weakness. For T12L1, one will also need to remove a rib and take down the diaphragm. In terms of anatomic risks, remember that the lumbar plexus moves dorsal to ventral, moving down the lumbar spine. The ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric nerves are also at risk, and they may be injured during retroperitoneal approach, resulting in groin paresthesias and abdominal paresis. The segmental arteries need to be stabled or tied off if a corpectomy is performed, and the aorta is also at risk, so it is important to place anterior retractors so damage to the aorta is prevented. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to lumbar spine anatomy, let's walk through some questions to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For the first question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 68-year-old is undergoing lateral lumbar interbody fusion using the trans-SOAS approach. Which of the following statements is true regarding the safe approach zone for this procedure as you move cranial to caudal in the lumbar spine? And the answer choices are, choice one, safe approach zone increases due to vessels moving more ventral. Choice two, 
Safe approach zone increases due to lumbar plexus moving more dorsal. Choice 3. Safe approach zone decreases due to vessels moving more dorsal. Choice 4. Safe approach zone decreases due to lumbar plexus moving more ventral. Or choice 5. Safe approach zone remains the same throughout the lumbar spine. The best answer to this question is choice 4. The safe approach zone decreases due to the lumbar plexus moving more ventral. As you move cranial to caudal in the lumbar spine, the safe approach zone for the lateral transoas approach decreases due to the more ventral position of the lumbar plexus. Lateral lumbar interbody fusion has become more common for degenerative spine disorders and adjacent segment degeneration. This transoas approach is typically useful for pathology from L1-L2 disc space to the L4-L5 disc space and places the lumbar plexus at risk. Working at the more caudal disc spaces is especially difficult given the more ventral position of the plexus, but the use of triggered EMG retractors and probes can help to prevent nerve injuries. Surgical approach can be especially difficult in patients with rotational deformities. The publication by Benglis et al. did a cadaver study with specimens placed laterally to trace the course of the lumbar plexus. They found that the plexus moves more ventral with respect to the disc space, moving more caudal in the lumbar spine. The publication by Park et al. used 10 cadaver specimens to measure the distance of the lumbar nerve roots from the center of the disc space in the lateral approach. While disc space access was generally safe, there was less distance to the nerve root for more caudal disc levels. The publication by Regev et al. did an MRI study to evaluate the safe working corridor for the lateral approach. The safe zone narrows considerably in the L4-L5 disc space due to more ventral positioning of the nerve roots, and they recommend careful monitoring when addressing this level. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choices 1, 2, and 5. The safe approach zone decreases moving from cranial to caudal in the lumbar spine. Choice 3. While the safe approach zone does decrease, the reason is due to a more ventral position of the lumbar plexus. The position of the great vessels remains relatively unchanged. For the second question, consider the following. Which of the following areas of the vertebral segment has the highest ratio of cortico to concellus bone? And the answer choices are Choice 1. Thoracic vertebral bodies Choice 2. Lumbar vertebral bodies Choice 3. Sacrum Choice 4. Pedicles of the lower lumbar spine Or Choice 5. Pedicles of the thoracic spine The best answer to this question is choice 5, pedicles of the thoracic spine. The weight-bearing potential of bone is influenced by the ratio of cortical to cancellous bone. The area of the spinal anatomy that has the highest ratio is the pedicles of the thoracic spine. This is followed by the lumbar pedicles. The vertebral bodies have a lower ratio than the pedicles, with the sacrum having the very lowest ratio. That's all for this review about lumbar spine anatomy. We hope that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast a daily audio review session from OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on orthobullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the OrthoBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the OrthoBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.